Good morning. My name is Jason, and I serve as the worship leader and an elder in training here at Redeemer. And it's my honor to present God's word to you this morning. It's been a while since I've had the privilege of proclaiming the good news to you. There have been a few, I don't know, life-changing events that have happened in my life over the last 18 months or so. You know, in 2020, we were all kind of going through the ups and downs of being locked up, or locked down, excuse me. <clears throat> Not locked up, locked down. Uh, and then my family and I have experienced, you know, we experienced COVID, COVID firsthand. You know, and then in 2021, we had our adorable little girl, Riley. And we thought that she might come early because of our experience with COVID. And then in September of last year, everybody got cool new shirts. Because I went through surgery. And I have a daily reminder of God's faithfulness. But all of these things can truly make somebody humble. It's also humbling to look at the many blessings that God has given me. To name a few, my beautiful wife, my adorable little dude Jonah, my adorable baby girl Riley. Yes, I say that with tons of bias. <clears throat> Today, we're going to be continuing in our series that we've titled Living in the Light of God's Invitations where we've been looking at the unique invitations that God has given us through Jesus. We're going to see that in those, living in those invitations means that we need to come to him regularly in prayer, confessing our sins and seeking his forgiveness, not extolling ourselves or excluding others. So with that in mind, I invite you to open your copy of God's Word. You can follow along on the events function on the YouVersion Bible app, or you can follow along using the screen. We're going to be in Luke 18, which is the part of Luke where Jesus describes how we can enter the kingdom. <clears throat> Luke 18, starting in verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down from his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is God's holy and inerrant word. May he add his blessing to his proclamation. So recall over the last couple of weeks, we've been seeing how Jesus has invited us to come weary and heavy burdened, to come thirsty, to come hungry for life and ready to feast on his grace, to come broken, to come weak, we, he also see, we also have seen that he wants us to come to him often and in childlike faith. Today, we're going to see how he invites us to come humbly, just as we are. Before we study this passage further, though, we need to define humility. Humility is a modest or low view of one's own importance. We can also look at humility to be the opposite of pride. As John Piper reminds us, every good thing in the Christian life grows in the soil of humility. 
Today we're going to be reflecting on this passage through the scope of eight things. We're going to see two men with different characteristics, two prayers with different postures and petitions, two results with different outcomes, with the idea that all of that should lead us to two questions that you and I should ask ourselves regularly. Which brings us to the first point, which we see two men with different characteristics. And we see this in verse 10. Two men, a Pharisee and the other, a tax collector. It's important to know that the character of these two people are more important than their identity. The first of the men mentioned is a Pharisee, or Pharisaeus in Greek, which is defined as a separatist or a distinguished one. Which, again, in verse 10, two men, one, a Pharisee. The Pharisees were a religious group who thrived during the later part of the Second Temple period from 515 B.C. to 70 A.D. They were highly religious. In fact, they were considered the most pious of the other religious sects, the others being the Sadducees and the Essenes. They went to the temple regularly to offer sacrifices, to listen to teaching, to fellowship and pray. So people expected to see Pharisees at temples praying. We see a few of these things about how they were religious in verse 12. As it says in the first part of that verse, they fast regularly. I fast twice a week. They also tithe, which we see also in verse 12. I give tithes of all that I get. If we look at Matthew 23, it says they tithe mint, dill, and cumin. The Pharisees literally tithed 10% of everything they had, including spices. It's important to know that they also believed in the resurrection of the body, as we see in Acts 23. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Neither of the other groups, the Sadducees or the Essenes, believed in the resurrection of the body. Not only were they religious, they were really important. They were the most important or influential of the religious sects. They kept the law, which we see in Matthew 23. The scribes and the Pharisees sit on on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you. And reading further in verse 13, For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. It's really important to note, too, that they also opposed Jesus a lot, which we see some of the opposition was in Matthew 12, where his disciples are violating the Sabbath. Later in that same passage, we see that they oppose him as he himself, Jesus, is healing on the Sabbath. And then they also, later in that same passage, accuse him of healing with demonic power. The second man mentioned is the tax collector, or a publican, depending on which translation you're using, which we see at the end of verse 10. Two men, the other, a tax collector. Tax collectors were hired by the Roman government to collect taxes. They were despised by the Jews. Why? Because they were corrupt and were considered among the lowers in society. 
which we see in Mark 2, 16. And the scribes of the Pharisees, <clears throat> when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Tax collectors were often used to represent sinners or outcasts in the book of Luke. They are known as kind of the, the antithesis or the opposite of the Pharisees. The tax collectors are those who respond positively to Jesus, which we see in other stories in Luke. Recall the calling of Levi or Matthew, and then the story of Zacchaeus. <clears throat> tax collectors are usually people who understand how wretched they are and how much they are in need of God's grace. Whereas the Pharisees think they have it all together. Recall last week when Pastor Chris talked about the strong and how God has a conflict with the strong. Why? Because they think they don't need God. Or they think that they don't want to depend on God. The Pharisees can fit into this category. In fact, here's the sad thing, you and I do as well. Because we feel as though we can take care of something on our own without God. <clears throat> so we can put this into modern terms. What if two guys show up to church? One, an SBC fundamentalist preacher. The other, a former or current abortionist, a person who carries out abortions. The fundamentalist preacher, like the Pharisee, someone who is probably sincere in their beliefs and sincere in why they do everything they do, those spiritual disciplines. <clears throat> they probably think that they're also okay with God because of all of those things. In our story, we see that the Pharisee thinks he's okay with God because he's very sincere. But sincerity doesn't save us. <clears throat> this is where we can kind of fall into a false notion that we assume that if we or someone is sincere enough, they'll be saved. The problem is the focus is on us and that, or that person, and we miss the idea of what truly can save us, which is the love of God. The love of God that he loved you and I so much that he gave us his only begotten son, not to condemn us, but to save us. <clears throat> the abortionist, in modern terms, would probably be considered one of the lowest of society. If he's a former abortionist, hopefully he's had an encounter with Christ and he realizes how wretched he is for doing what he's done. <clears throat> okay, so we've seen the two different men with different characteristics. Now we're going to look at the two prayers with different postures and petitions. As verse 10, again, says, two men went up into the temple to pray. <clears throat> One extols or praises himself and excludes others. <clears throat> it's here why we see that Jesus told this parable in the first place, as it says in verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. The Pharisee's prayer here leads him to sin further by being prideful, 
which he has a lot of knowledge about what is right and what is wrong. But knowledge can lead to being prideful or being puffed up, as the Apostle Paul describes in this letter to the Corinthian church, which says, we all know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The Pharisees, again, saw themselves as the best example of God's righteousness. They're portrayed as self-righteous, legalistic, hypocritical, power-hungry, and money lovers. They say everybody else, or see everybody else as an ignorant sinner who should be scorned. As Proverbs 16 says, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. We see his posture. In verse 11, it says, the Pharisee standing by himself. And then in his petition, he doesn't confess sin. Instead, he talks about how good he's doing. Which he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers or even like this tax collector. So in a sense, we can say, thank you that I'm better than people who extort money from someone by threatening to expose them. Or people who don't behave according to what's moral. Or people who commit adultery. Or people who are corrupt thieves. Thank you that I'm better than these people. I think it's interesting, interesting that he even says, I'm not as bad as this tax collector. Which the people hearing this story would agree. Because most of them didn't like tax collectors because they were, again, corrupt. <clears throat> so here's the question that I have. In what ways do, do we pray like this? You and I, Pray like the hypocrites and the Gentiles. As we see what it says in Matthew 6. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Or in verse 7. And when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. The Pharisees' prayer is 33 words. Something to that. We also like to compare ourselves. At least I know I do. I'm not as bad as this person. The other prayer here confesses sin and seeks God's forgiveness. The tax collector's prayer echoes the prayers of confession that we see in Psalm 32 and in Psalm 51. As Psalm 32.5 says, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. In the context of this verse, we see that if we keep silent, as the psalmist describes, his bones wasted away through groaning all day long. We also see in Psalm 51, as David is confessing after he's basically called out by the prophet Nathan after his encounter with Bathsheba. He says, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. 
Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. The thing we need to remember, as it says in Psalm 103, God doesn't deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquity. Because if this was true, you and I are doomed. If our entrance to eternal paradise was contingent on how good we are, we're not going. If we keep reading in Psalm 103, it says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. I have used this saying in prior messages, but it's really important to understand that you can't get further away from the east as from the west. That's how far God removes our transgressions from us. Which is important to know that it's only possible because of what Christ has done for us. Okay, necessary tangent aside. In our passage, we see the posture of the tax collector. He is standing far off. He wouldn't lift his eyes to heaven. Why? He's ashamed of his sins. As it says in verse 13, But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast. Which echoes what it says in Ezra 9. O God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God. For my iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. And in Psalm 79, help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins, for your name's sake. So in his, his petition, he confesses his sin. Not really outright, but he asks for mercy which we see at the, at the end of verse 13. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Be merciful here is in the imperative form as it's a petition to God for his mercy as the tax collector acknowledges the fact that he is a sinner or even a thief, someone who's corrupt. In what ways should he pray like We can again look at Matthew 6. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. Which is the exact opposite of what it said, what you read earlier, which says, don't pray like the hypocrites. Don't stand and pray in the synagogues and the churches and the street corners to be seen by others. Our goal should be to follow this model of prayer either in Matthew 6 or the one here by the tax collector. We should also ask for forgiveness, which we see in Matthew 6, 12. And forgive our debts, but we have also forgiven our debtors. <clears throat> the tax collector's prayer is seven words. Why is this important? Because prayer shouldn't be about what other people think about us. It should be about what God thinks about us. After all, prayer is our way that we get to talk with God, which is the point of this whole series. You and I have the invitation 
to come to God messed up, not with our act together, as the great hymn, Come Ye Sinners, mentions. We can come to God if we're poor and needy, if we're weak and wounded, if we're sick and sore, if we're thirsty, if we're weary and heavy laden, if we're lost and ruined. We don't have to have everything together first, as this hymn describes. If we wait until we're better, we're never going to come at all. Because after all, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick, the people whose lives are messed up, the people who realize that Jesus is everything they need and everything they've been searching for in the false ideologies of the world. That's who need a doctor. So we've seen two men with different characteristics and two prayers with different postures and petitions. This leads us then to the two results, each with different outcomes. Which, this section's a little bit different because it talks about the tax collector first. The tax collector is received and exalted by God as he goes home justified. As verse 14 says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. And then this is the key to the whole passage. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. He goes home justified or declared right because he humbles himself and realizes that he has nothing to offer. Why? Because he's a sinner. He doesn't brag about how good he is or that he's better off than other people. He instead realizes his depravity. And confesses that and cries out for mercy and goes home justified. <clears throat> As the great hymn writer Augustus Toplady penned in the song Rock of Ages, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Or as a more modern song says, I approach the throne of glory Nothing in my hands I bring but the promise of acceptance from a good and gracious king. Oh, what grace that you would see me as your child and as your friend, safe, secure in you forever. I pour out my praise again. This is true because Jesus has taken the penalty for our sins. God's grace isn't favor that you and I can achieve by being good. Why? Because according to God's standard, no one's good. We see in Romans 5, for a while we were still weak. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And then in verse 8, which is a phenomenal verse, but God shows his love for us that what while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Or as it says in 1 Peter, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds, not by our works. You have been healed. The Pharisee, is rejected and excluded by God. 
I like how Eugene Peterson puts verse 14 into a more modern context. It says, Jesus commented, this tax man, not the other, went home, made right with God. If you walk around with your nose in the air, you're going to end up flat on your face. But if you're content to be simply yourself, you will become more than yourself. That's a great imagery right there. <clears throat> or as the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 3, For by works of the law, no human being was justified in his sight. <clears throat> okay, so we've seen the two men with different characteristics. We've seen the two prayers with different postures and petitions. We've seen the two results with different outcomes. This should lead us to the two questions that we should regularly ask ourselves. <clears throat> How do we come to God like the Pharisee? Well, we do things by showing how holy we are. We go to church, we go to a small group, we pray, we read our Bibles, we give. All of these are well and good, but if we're just going through the motions, what's the point? We can also be sincere about these things, but again, we can fall into the trap of just checking boxes. Oh, I got to do my U version, otherwise I'll, my streak will be ended. I'm guilty of that. <clears throat> As the Apostle Paul writes in Galatians 5, you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by law, you have fallen away from grace. We try to earn our salvation. A works-based salvation means nothing. Nothing. I mean, we can be good people. We can do a lot of good for people. But the problem is, if we haven't encountered the love of Christ and His saving grace, it literally means nothing. We can be sincere about doing good again. But without Christ and His saving work and His redemption that restored us back to the Father... His justification, it doesn't matter. <clears throat> While I was preparing for this message, I uh, re was reminded of this book that I had begun reading a long time ago called Accidental Pharisees by Larry Osborne. A couple of quotes that are just astounding to me. <clears throat> Accidental Pharisees are people like you and me, Ooh, ouch, who despite the best intentions and a desire to honor God unwittingly end up pursuing an overzealous model of faith that sabotages the world of the Lord where we think we're serving. Or, as he writes a little later, <clears throat> we can't earn our way into God's favor by meticulously following a moral code or even a biblical one. Our deeds will never be righteous enough. Why? Because God's standard of holiness is way beyond our best efforts. Instead, we should ask ourselves, how should we come to God like the tax collector? We should recognize that we can't earn our salvation. As the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 11, <clears throat> but, if it is but if it is by grace... It is no longer on the basis of work. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. 
Or as Ephesians 2 says, For grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. Why? So that no one may boast. Or again, as Eugene Peterson puts it in the message, saving is all his idea and all his work. All we do is trust him enough to let him do it. It's God's gift from start to finish. We don't play a major role. If we did, we'd probably go around bragging that we've done the whole thing. No, we neither make nor save ourselves. As the great preacher Jonathan Edwards has quoted in saying, the only thing that you and I contribute to to salvation is the sin that first made it necessary. As the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Timothy, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. In the book Proof by Daniel Montgomery and T.P. Jones, we see that every aspect of your or our salvation, our new life, our faith, our repentance is a gift from God. They go on to write further that the cross of Christ makes the end of trying to earn God's favor by keeping rules and working our way up the stairway to heaven. We should understand that the results of our prayers are not contingent on anything that we do. As we will see in this, as we study the book of James in a few weeks, <clears throat> but when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Prayer, answers to prayer are all God's doing. You and I don't do anything. <clears throat> I can remember uh, <clears throat> at a church I was a part of at one time, you know, after a worship service, you know, a guy came up and asked if he could pray for me because of my cough. I was like, sure, go ahead. <clears throat> so he started praying for me, and, and then afterward, you know, we were, he finished and everything, and he kept asking me, how do you feel? How do you feel? How do you feel? I'm like, uh, I, feel, I feel better? I don't know. I said better because if I said the same, he'd probably pray for me again and again <laughs> and again. I'm like, bro, you don't understand. Yeah, you can pray for me, but it's all about the Holy Spirit working. And it's up to God's choice, not what you're doing, what you're praying for. <clears throat> So we need to understand that our prayers are not up to us to be answered or not. Which we see in Titus 3 that says he saved us not because of works done by, our, by us in righteousness, <clears throat> but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Yes, prayer is an important thing, 
we should come humbly, crying out for God's mercy. Not extolling ourselves, saying, God, I'm so good. Look at what I've done. No. Instead, we should come, God, I am a sinner. Look at the, look at the tax collector's prayer. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's how we should pray. <clears throat> As it says in James 4, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves before God. And in verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up in honor. He doesn't say extol yourself before God and he'll lift you up. No, humble yourself before God. <clears throat> as Paul writes in Colossians 3, therefore as God cho God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. <clears throat> Again, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. That's important for us to understand because we know, we should know, that we are only able to approach the throne because of what Christ has done for us. Otherwise, we have no right to go before God. Recall, we read this verse last week, as it says in 1 Corinthians 1. <clears throat> and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Or as the Apostle Paul puts it in a different way in 2 Corinthians 5. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The only way you and I become the righteousness of God is by Christ becoming sin for us. His righteousness, Christ's righteousness, is imputed or given to us while our sin is taken upon by him. As the writer of Hebrews reminds us, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace for help at the time of our need. Let us approach the throne of grace with confidence so that why? We may receive mercy. And why? That we may find grace for help in our time of need. We've been invited to come humbly to God. God gives us clean hands and pure hearts so that we can go to him. As the song we sang prior to the message is from Psalm 24. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? He that has clean hands and pure hearts. That only happens when we come humbly to God. And it only happens when we take on the posture and petition of the tax collector and we acknowledge that we have sinned 
Again, we don't, when we pray, we shouldn't be, God, thank you that I'm not like this person or this person. Or I'm not as bad as Jason. <clears throat> no, we should pray asking for God's mercy, which is him withholding the punishment that you and I deserve. You and I deserve death for our sins and transgressions against God, but we've been given mercy. <clears throat> so let's approach that throne humbly, acknowledging that it is only because of the price that Christ paid for our sins that we are even able to come to him in the first place. Let's pray. Father God, we, we come to you humbly. We are bowing our hearts and bending our knees as we are acknowledging that we are sinners. We are people who are in need of your grace and your everlasting mercy. <coughs> Father, it is you who sent your Son to cleanse us from our sins and blotted our transgressions. And remove them as far as the east is from the west. We thank you that you loved us so much, even though we have sinned, that you would pour out all of your wrath that we deserve on him instead of on us. We know he lived the life that we were meant to live but couldn't do so. Therefore, he had to die the death that we have been condemned to die. We are asking humbly, God, that you would remind us that we need to approach you like the tax collector, knowing that we are sinners and not like the Pharisee, where we exalt others and ourselves over other people. We know that this is only possible through your grace and through your son's death and resurrection. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.